back to another episode of Cross the Fence. I've missed you guys. We've been away from each other for the last couple of weeks. We've had the 12 days of Christmas here at KFUO, which uh, if you're kind of keeping track, is more like 12-ish days of Christmas, but maybe you shouldn't keep track. Just enjoy all that special programming. And now, enjoy being back. Back to our regular scheduled programming and uh, back to Cross the Fence for the first time in 2021. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But if you remember this show, I hope you haven't forgotten, this show is all about equipping the mind, exciting the imagination, and comforting the soul. Those three things, doing them all with God's word, and for a particular reason. Remember why? Because we have a fierce foe out there, and our only defense, our only defense, is Christ on the cross. And so we go to God's word, and we talk to God's servants, his under shepherds who are in parishes across this world who are serving his people. And we talk to them about God's word and they deliver the goods that equip the mind, excite the imagination and comfort the soul. That's what we're going to be doing this day, this year for as long as I'm at the mic with you. We're going to be doing those three things and we're going to be doing it in a way that uh, you know, raises up some curious conversations as we talk about some curious content in this curious, curious world we live in. It is bizarre. And if any of you thought that just because the ball dropped in New York um, and we're in a new year, that things would change, you might be asleep at the wheel, my friend, that things don't work that way. Everything just doesn't roll over and the, the new leaf doesn't you know, get flipped on its head just because now we're writing checks with 2021 on them. No, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes being awake and engaging these topics. And so let's let's talk about in this first segment some stuff that's probably on your mind, on your heart, given everything that happened last week, especially in DC. We had a couple things happen, and we're going to talk about probably one of them more than the other, but just because I know you're thinking about it, there's some weird stuff going on. First of all, we had the whole a man, a woman fiasco, and that that completely unchristian prayer all, everything about that prayer was just atrocious, not just the ending. And then we had the violence at the Capitol building. You heard about it. And today we're going to talk to Pastor Christopher Toma, who's the, the shepherd, the under-shepherd at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Heartland, Michigan. We're going to talk to him, you've heard of him before, about what's going on there and how as Christians we can engage this and think this through in a way that will equip our minds. He's on the mic right now with us. Pastor Toma, how are you? Hey, I'm doing fine, Tyrell. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. I've been wondering about, about your thoughts ever since I you know, watched what was going on in D.C. I, you're a man who I know is plugged into these sorts of issues, uh, a leader in this regard, in my mind. And I've been wondering and, and just dying to hear from you. And, and I've been reading some of the things that you've posted online and, and how you've engaged your, your, your sheep there, the flock that you're you've been charged with. And so I kind of wanted to share your thoughts with the world and let you speak uh, to the cross defense listeners. Let's, let's kind of dive into this thing. Um, first of all, just kind of give me a brief overview of your just sort of reaction to the chaos at the Capitol. Well, I, I put a, you know, I watched it yesterday. I spent pretty much most of the afternoon and early evening, right up until our um, Epiphany of Our Lord the Divine Services that night at about seven, um, I was watching it and just digesting it and 
and uh, thinking on it. And, and today I took a little bit of time. I, I, most of my morning was spent doing a lot of other things here in our school and in, in the church and, and meetings and stuff. But I finally had a chance to sort of sit down and I sort of chewed on it a little. And in the end, I, I began what I had to think on the whole thing by saying, I really don't know what to think about. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm still kind of simmering in what I've seen. Um, I don't support the violence. Um, and I'm incredibly sad that I think four people died in right. the midst of everything that had happened. But I'm also uh, making these comments knowing that a country such as ours, um, you know, it, is so diametrically opposed. Uh, it has so many, it has two particular points of view um, that are so diametrically opposed that um, I almost feel like what we saw yesterday was inevitable. And we had um, particular people in particular positions of authority making sure that it happened. So that concerns me. Um, in the end, of course, my my hope is in Christ, and I'm going to do everything that I can to, as, as a pastor, aim the people in my care and aim anybody who would read anything that I would write or hear anything that I would say, aim them to Christ as the only sure and certain hope in the midst of a situation like this. But uh, I will do that also being uh, somewhat pragmatic in my thinking that um, January 6th of 2021 very well could be recorded in the history books as the first day of the second civil war. I mean, I mean, this is uh, what we saw and what is happening is not good. Or as a former a pastor I used to serve with would say, it's ungood. <laughs> it's an ungood situation. I was just telling my wife the other day, we were talking about uh, these sorts of events and we were talking about 2020 in general, just as we were coming into the new year. And I was saying something similar that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me as we go forward, if we see that 2020 is a marker of a new era, a new new whatever, because you know, as you read the history books, it's always with a um, there's always some big event, some big historical marker that indicates the beginning and the ending of these things, right? Like post modernity, they they usually associate that with the fall of the Berlin Wall or something. There's there's some sort of indicator that happens in history, and I wouldn't be surprised if 2020 was was that. And now with this, I, that, that conversation was happening before this new event. And so I, I pray you're wrong, but I, I tend to hear what you're saying. I, I'm concerned. Now you mentioned in uh, pointing people to Christ, and that's what pastors do. That's what every pastor should be doing. And that right there is the, the long and short of it. That's the simple truth. When the world starts to fall apart, we do what we do every day. We point people to Jesus. You, you made a uh, comment, and I'm going to read what you wrote here on your Facebook page, uh, because I think it's really good for us to think through. It'll re really help us equip our mind. Uh, this idea of trust not in princes, and you and you gave a little commentary on the thought of trust not in princes, because that's what a lot of people were, were rushing to say. Uh, they were rushing to make a comment about you're not putting your hope and your trust in any sort of governmental leader. And let, let me read what you said for the listener's sake, and then have you sort of uh, walk us through it there. If there's more to be said, uh, trust not in Prince. Okay. I still don't know. This is, I'm quoting uh, Pastor Toma now. I still don't know any genuine Christians concerned for the nation who've put their faith in the government. In fact, it's for the sake of faithfulness to Christ that they have embraced their duty as citizens to do what the Lord mandates, which means doing whatever we can as citizens 
to preserve a national context for the free preaching and teaching of the gospel, 1 Timothy 2, 1-6. Although it's worth noting that Luther and so many others call for the public trust, both expected from and due to those whom God has put into place to govern, still, far too many clergy use trust not in princes as a gotcha text, as though the heartache civil-minded Christians are now experiencing is their own fault because they've co-mingled their faith in Christ with the public trust that even God declares Caesar is due. Of course, trust not in princes is a beautiful text from Psalm 146. It speaks a divine truth, but it can become a tired accusation from those who continue to wield it loosely. In that sense, it is of little use to me in my consideration. I just got to react to that, first of all, before I give you the microphone back and say, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us a textured response to a phrase that I, I, I saw fill my feet. It just filled my feet after the chaos in the Capitol. So now, could you walk us through a little bit more, especially for the, the lay people listening, and, and what you meant by that and just kind of give us some texture to that? Well, t- trust not in princes. Beautiful text. And I, and I think, you know, I make that point in the post. I don't have the post in front of me, but I make that point in the post. Right. And I think if I remember correctly, too, that particular section, uh, I started it off with the word, duh. <laughs> I left that off oh, on did purpose. You? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's trust not in princes. Yeah. Duh. I mean, I, I don't really, it was meant as a almost maybe with a little bit more of an oomph than even the way you were reading it. It We don't have, um, I don't know any. I don't have any politically. Mi- I don't know any politically minded Christians who are who have who are offering gold, frankincense, and myrrh at the altar of uh, of the kingdom of the left. I don't see that happening. But what I do see happening are Christians who are hurting uh, as they engage in the public square, as we are mandated to do, uh, and that only to have um, maybe clergy come back around on the other side and say, see, I told you, don't put your faith in princes. Here's another example as to how how they all fall short. Well, we know that. I mean, we know that, but it doesn't change the fact that we are t- we are urged to do whatever we can as Christian people to engage in the public square. And why? We engage because we're doing whatever we can to make sure that we can help to provide a context in this nation where religious liberty can can remain, where we can preach and teach the gospel. Um, that's what we want. That's, uh, and I um, referenced First Timothy 2, um, 1 through 6 there, because that's the gist of that particular text. Why are we praying? Why are we offering supplications? Why are we interceding? Why are we doing these things? Well, Paul's pretty clear. He says, so that the gospel can go forward. This is pleasing to God, and he wants us to have these good relationships. He wants us to have good rulers. He wants us to have these things. We're not trying to be dominionists and take over the the United States of America and impose a Christianized government. We're trying to maintain a context where we can actually go to church, where we can walk out and, and, uh, and live as God's people without having an imposition upon us that the world would impose its religiosity on us. So... You know, don't trust in princes. It's, again, it's just kind of a duh. Why are you saying that? That doesn't even that doesn't even apply here right now. Nobody's trusting in Donald Trump as God. Um, 
I love that. Here I am. I was trying to trying to. Uh, I, I didn't really know what kind of voice you wrote that in. So here I was trying to uh, sort of help protect you, and you're like, no, just yeah, well, yeah, I well, yeah no, don't worry about that. I, I, my, you know, you said your feed filled up too. Well, mine filled up right away. You know, I even had guys text me saying, "See, Tom, I told you, don't trust in princes." Gosh, why? <laughs> why do you? I'll, I'll uh, calm down on this. That that kind of stuff when it's weaponized like that is is not helpful at all. Psalm Psalm one forty six is not trying to be a gotcha psalm, um, not in any yeah. way. It's simply telling us something that we as God's people are to know by faith that our hope is in Christ constantly. We know that, but that hope it, it recalibrates us to be His people in a world that needs the same hope, and so we go out. And we live our lives as God's people, engaging and doing what it is that we can do. Speak it, you know, speaking out against the violence. The violence is not something that any pastor should be saying. Uh, we want first and foremost. No one strikes. Uh, no, no Christian uh, should be out there saying, you know, we need to shoot first and ask questions later. That's not. That's not godly. Um, however, however, a Christian needs to be pondering why these things are happening. Uh, all along the way, trusting the Lord with their trust in the Lord. And from there, step out into these contexts using those lenses. Um, I just think it's a false, I mean, it's a false narrative to kind of say, see, Christians told you, you know, you're putting too much hope in the government. Nobody's doing that. Not nobody that I know um, is doing that. And it, there was a message that's, that says your, your attempts to engage in our country, our culture in the political square and the social square, the public square, See, you shouldn't even wasted your time. Yeah, it's a sh- like, and right. that's shameful um, to tell tell Christians that because that's false. That's absolutely false. Um, that and that, uh, if anything, uh, if we were going to get into some theological joust, um, I would pray that there would be some pastors or some parishioners who'd be willing to push back against their pastors and say, "Well, you know, I, I'm faithful in word and sacrament ministry. I'm being strengthened to be a Christian. Well, where am I being strengthened to be a Christian on Mars? I live on Earth for crying out loud." Um, here's what's going on. Um, God does have uh, a plan for what it is that he's giving to me to be used in the world around me. But one of the main ways, I mean, you can't disconnect a human being from the political square or from the political sphere. If anything, it's one of the principal primary places that touches everything in our lives. I mean, if you're not, if you're not engaging in the public square in some way as a Christian, you, you have my guess is that you're in a coma because it's a part of everything that we are and everything that we do. Um, it's just there. So you have to deliberately Amen. avoid it um, to, uh, to not be in it. Yeah, one of the things that popped out of me as I was reading that particular paragraph was the quotation or the, the citing of first Timothy two one to six. You don't quote it, but you do cite it there because you're referencing right. it. And for the listeners here, I'm going to read the whole thing in, in full because I think this is the point. This is why people are engaged. This is why people are, are Christians should be involved in a political system. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll stop and I'll highlight exactly what I'm talking about when I get to that point. And you've already mentioned it, so I'm just repeating for clarity's sake. But First uh, Timothy 2, 1 to 6, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Right there, that that idea that we're doing this because 
We want a peaceful place, a quiet life in which we can preach the gospel. We can teach people that Jesus is their Savior. We can, we can bring them the sacraments. We can, we can live in this, this Christian life that we've been brought into. Uh, and this is why I want to point out that peaceful thing, right? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, brother, but I mean, that's the whole point, right? That's the engagement. That's the reason Christians want to be engaged in politics so that they're serving their neighbors, so their neighbors can worship Jesus unhindered. And, you know, that's a, right? that's a very good point. Um, that peaceful and quiet life is a big part, I think, of what uh, Paul is, is telling Timothy. Um, if you follow the grammar there, uh, even more so, uh, the logic behind it, um, again, I should probably get this out uh, in front of me, but he talks about this being, you know, like, as you said, this is good. It's pleasing uh, to God. Uh, but why is it pleasing? Because, you know, the very next verse, verse four, going, I'm sure going into five, is the confession of what God is all about. Why Why would our desire to have a peaceful, why would our desire to have religious liberty, I should say, which is the freedom to live a peaceful and quiet life, uh, godly and dignified, why would he want that? Because he desires all people to be saved. In the end, a context like that allows for the free preaching and teaching of the gospel so that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And, and what is that truth? Well, he, go, he goes right on to say what that is. It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. We're preaching Christ and him crucified, uh, the only mediator between God and men. Um, so that's why we engage. That's why we do what we do. Um, you know, yesterday's events... Uh, Gosh, it sent it sent a lot of Christians, I think, into heartache for sure. But it doesn't change uh, anything about the fact that we are to remain engaged. We're to continue to do whatever it is that we can do to establish this as the platform or the stage or the context uh, for the country in which we live. Absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there. We're just at the end of our segment. But that's the point. That's it right there. Pastor Toma nailed it. Uh, it's if anything, what we saw at the Capitol is evidence that we have work to do, that there is service to be done for our neighbor, that things could be done peacefully. We will be back right after this break. Don't go away. We will excite the imagination with Pastor Schulteis. I want to thank Pastor Toma for taking some time to be with us in the, uh, the wake of some craziness kicking off 2021. Thank you, Pastor. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Tyro. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Finner. I am humbled to be the new host of Thy Strong Word every weekday from 11 to noon. We will receive the gift of God's Word and Paul's epistles for our new series. We will travel with Paul from city to city, from letter to letter, as he encourages, exhorts, proclaims, and points us to Christ and Him crucified for your forgiveness. Join us, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Right, thanks for sticking around. We are back, and now it's time to excite that imagination of yours. You have an imagination. I hope you know you have an imagination. We haven't spoken for a couple weeks, so maybe you forgot that your imagination is still alive and well, and if you have, well, it's, it's time to wake it back up. So here we go. We have our regular Imagineer with us, the Reverend Sam Schulteis. How are you, Sam? 
Doing well. Good to see you, Ty. And, and you as well. You. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad that you're with us today. It means that you survived the Christmas rush for all passengers. We did. We did. It was good. It was enjoyable. It was, uh, yeah, busy as always, but, uh, but you yeah, know, uh, a joyful, uh, in a, in a, in a seasonally appropriate way, relaxing. <laughs> right? Wonderful. Obviously, that's, not like kicking back your feet, kind of vacation sort of thing. But you know, I don't know there's something about the Christmas something. hymns. Yeah, mm. the, the hymns of Christmas, the services of Christmas. Those are, I don't know, they're always some of my favorite kinds, favorite types of the year. And uh, they, even with all the craziness in the world, it was good to just hear the Christmas story read, sing some Christmas hymns together, and uh, rejoice in Christ's birth. For sure. Excellent. Well, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to we're going to excite the imagination. We got to wake these yeah, people up. Everyone who's listening absolutely. has been away from us for a couple of weeks. They might have forgotten how to use that imagination. We got to wake them up. It's a good muscle to do that too, right? It's sort of the uh, the muscle of the brain that we got to yeah, like like other muscles got to stretch and use and uh, yeah, you know, they've been eating too much fruitcake and I think uh, not exercising <laughs> their imagination as well. We need uh, we need some lembus uh, for our imaginations here, some good elvish whey bread. So we'll we'll try to do that. Uh, <laughs> give us the uh, the good words here. So uh, yeah, we we were talking a little bit uh, before we were recording last time about uh, you know monsters in the in the scriptures, yeah. right? And uh, you know when it comes to when it comes to the imagination, when it comes to storytelling, especially. Uh, you know, monsters are a big part of our imagination, and sometimes it's sometimes they're real. Uh, there are there are real things that are monsters that are that are monstrous, uh, and then sometimes there's there's imaginary monsters too. You know, the kinds we see in you know fairy fairy stories. Uh, you know, Smog the dragon, or uh, you know other uh, the White Witch in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Other villainous characters. You know. Uh, Slytherin, right? Uh, snakes. Right. Uh, sorry, Slytherin fans. If you're a Harry Potter fan, with that, but uh, the, it's they're, they're the bad guys in the books for a reason, right? Because <laughs> snakes are always bad, right? This is one of the things that you know. Right off the scriptures, uh, at the beginning of Genesis already, we hear about you know uh, Satan, fallen angel, uh, a created being by the Lord Himself, and yet rebelled against the Lord, and he he takes the form of of a serpent, of a beast, of something that becomes sort of. In, endemic in human in human consciousness from the, I think from the fall on as, as something that is wicked and evil right there's a reason that snakes and serpents are so often and dragons right so often bad guys or villains or monsters in stories and I think I think a lot of that comes from this this real event of, of the fall and Satan himself taking the form of a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve so you know the scriptures are no strangers uh, or is no stranger to to monster and monstrous things uh, whether it's from the devil or the world and I think we have to also include our own right, our own sinful flesh too right when we talk about the things in scripture that are depicted as as monstrous or as as monsters right so you know Genesis 3 obviously is a big one and an easy one but there's some other maybe I don't know lesser known more obscure things to look at so okay. um, yeah that's that's kind of where we're headed so look at the uh, a look at the fantastic beasts of the Bible right <laughs> <laughs> well that's good you know I've often wondered if there is sort of this memory, this human memory, like you hear about, like, you know, most cultures have a flood story. You know, right. most cultures have these sorts of things. Uh, there's the, you know, the, the hero with a thousand faces, this Joseph Campbell mm -hmm. stuff about the hero figure, the mm -hmm. Christ figure. And we certainly recognize that. 
and and Lewis, mm-hmm. as you as you know well, Lewis talks about how uh, you know all these other myths are are the false myths, but there is a true myth, and and right. it's because we share this human history. And I've often right. wondered if that that shared human history is is why snakes are just naturally our enemy, like just in They're our just mind, in our yeah. psyche, right? Not, not necessarily. Right. And my my father in law. Um, he used to have like a wall. This is a, I, I didn't know him when he had this, but apparently, this, as the story goes, he had a wall of aquariums with snakes in them, ooh, uh, ooh, and in ooh. his basement. And I, I'm glad I didn't know the family at that time because I, I, I have think, an aversion yeah. to snakes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think most people most people do. There, there's obviously there's exceptions to that. There's a lot of a lot of reptilian lovers out there. Uh, maybe a lot of wannabe parcel mouths. Uh, but at the same time. <laughs> There is, yeah. There's this, there's this, just kind of icky part about uh, yeah. lizards and snakes that that a lot of us have, right? Indiana <laughs> Jones I'm, hits that one out of the park, right? Yeah, precisely. Snakes, snakes. Take us into the scriptures, my friend. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So, after Genesis three, uh, one of the one of the other kind of strange, beastly like monster sort of scenarios we come in con- come into contact with next is. Uh, so in Genesis six, and this is one of the ones that people often will point to when they talk about you know monsters and things and sort of strange, strange creatures or or things in the Bible, right? And I say things deliberately because I don't really think these are actually monsters. Uh, here's the it's in Genesis six. Uh, this is the so-called uh, Nephilim, right? Uh, and uh, yeah. I'll read the passage real quick and then uh, quickly kind of outline some of the. Uh, one of the crazy theories, and then I think point us quickly to to the right uh, theory about this or the, the right. right interpretation there. All right, so Genesis 6, uh, just 1 through 4, or really, yeah, 1 through 4, first few verses there. All right, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the Nephilim, I mean, just the name itself sounds kind of cool, right? It sounds kind of, it sounds something like you would read in, in Middle Earth or, you know, some kind of fantasy adventure story. Um, but Hebrew often has that sound to it, and it's just one of those words in Hebrew that often gets sort of can't get translated well into into English. So it gets it gets that right. It gets that way. Uh, well, I mean, uh, here's the here's the uh, I mentioned this before we read the passage. Uh, the goofy theory uh, is that these Nephilim are are fallen angels to Earth and they come and um, have marital relations with women. Right. And uh, then they then they create uh, these these Nephilim or these children of angels kind of thing. So the whole situation kind of gets morphed into this strange thing. But there's there's really no there's no good reason to to, to think that. And there, there's a lot of there's a lot of historical research you could go into this and, and get behind this. But but right. The sons of God right, are, are believers. Right. I mean, there's no reason to think they're anything but that. Right. Sons of God are believers. Right. And sons of man. Right. Uh, or daughters of man. Uh, are are children of unbelievers, right? So, you know, there were there people that were real that lived that were larger than others. Yeah, probably so, right? And we have some other examples of this in the Bible. 
But there's no thing, no reason to think that just because they were maybe larger in stature or in size and maybe even in strength. Think of like guys like Goliath, right, uh, who's described as a very large man, right? Um, or even some of the – well, we come into contact with these Nephilim uh, later on in the, in the Old Testament. So maybe we'll hold that for a moment. But there's no reason to think that uh, just because all those things – uh, those physical traits were there that they were somehow uh you know sort of descendants of, of an angelic human sort of strange union right there's nowhere else in scripture that that happens that, that that's talked about or even hinted at um it's it's just it's just weird right uh, so i think it's far better and far more faithful to the scriptures to say all right this is this is moses way in genesis 6 of talking about uh, those who believed in Yahweh and his promises, marrying and having children with those who were not believers. And then, you know, Genesis 6, as as we would expect from here on, kind of devolves into this wickedness of earth um, because of man's sinfulness, right? Because of that earlier beastly temptation by uh, Satan and the devil himself in Genesis 3, right? Um, so these Nephilim come, I mentioned this a few moments ago, they, they come back into play way later in, uh, oh, where is it here? I wrote it down. Do, 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 do. Got it by my note. Ah, there it is in Numbers 13, right? So the children of Israel and in Deuteronomy 2 as well. So in Numbers 13, um, the children of Israel are nearing the promised land and they send out spies, right? Jacob and Caleb and, and the other guys. And they go into the land and, oh, it's great, right? They bring back loads, I mean, bushels, like huge, gigantic piles of grapes and other fruit of the land to show that yeah, this is indeed the land that God had promised flowing with all these you know, milk and honey right? and, and blessings would abound. Uh, but then they said, well, no, wait, we can't go there. Uh, we, or we shouldn't go there. It's a little too scary, right? Um, sort of Monty Python, run away, run away. Because <laughs> the people there are huge. They're these Nephilim guys perhaps distant relatives of these Genesis 6 uh, family members and other things. Well, you know, uh, obviously through the flood and all sorts of twists and turns in the historical uh, narrative there in Genesis. But uh, somehow descendants of all of this, uh, of this, and and yet they're, there they are. They're big, they're huge, uh, they're scary. Well, I think the other spies, not Jacob and Caleb, or Joshua and Caleb, right? They compare them to to grasshoppers in, next to these gigantic people that are in uh, in the land of Canaan and in, in the promised land that the Lord has blessed them and promised them that they were going to be able to take in and inhabit anyway. So, right, their fears may have been real, but they were unfounded, right? Um, so all that to say is the Genesis 6 and Nephilim monsters really aren't monsters at all in, in so much as we think of, you know, beasts and horns and, you know, 12 feet and tails and breathing fire and stuff like that, right? uh, but rather uh, maybe monstrous in the fact that they exhibit the same wickedness and tyranny and sinfulness that uh, is, well, is now part of man's existence after Genesis 3 and the fall, right? East of Eden. Um, men are monsters too. Right? One thing that pops out at me at this, that every time I, I mean, these guys capture my imagination like crazy. And every time I'm talking oh, absolutely. about this or, or, or you know, considering the Nephilim and this verse, these, these texts here in Genesis 6, uh, I can't get around this last little line here in verse 4. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And I think yeah. of that word renown, and I, I have to look at the Hebrew, and maybe you did, I don't know. but um, I didn't get a chance to go that far into it, no. Yeah, but it makes me think, and even just in the English, you know, how, how do you become a man of renown? What does that mean? Right. It means someone knows your name. You have a reputation. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And you think of uh, mm-hmm. you think of the Tower of Babel. You think of the flood. You think of the the wickedness that's coming that we're about to get into mm-hmm. in Genesis, right? That's like mm-hmm. right there. This text is leading into what right. is the problem? Men are not they're not uh, focused on God's name, God's word. Right. Mm-hmm. They're now there's these men mm-hmm. who are setting up names for themselves. Their reputations right. for themselves, right? This sort right, of yeah. What are they renowned for, right? That's the. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. that's where I think that's where Moses kind of leads us. Is that yeah? They're exactly they're setting up for themselves their own yeah their own renown uh, their own renown ren- renowning. Right? We, <laughs> yeah, and if we want to think about that in terms of monster, right? Because monster is a word that yeah, it just grabs our imagination. Uh, mm-hmm. Monsters Inc. Right. This is a fun little take on on taking the right. monster thing and then flipping it, and making you know because a population of monsters and some of them are good, right. some yeah. Are bad. Um, yep. But this monster language just is like captivating, like you mentioned. Like Nephilim mm-hmm. sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. Um, but mon- what is a monster? If you want to really get down and dirty with it, a monster in biblical terms, it would talk about sin and saint and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It's someone who is who is not. Um, who's at odds with the Lord, right? It's, yeah, it's the absolutely. sinner. It's set the old Adam us. Yeah, exactly. Completely, totally, entirely set against, right? Set against the Lord and his work and his word and his ways. Yeah. How monstrous. Uh, I mean, yeah. And that's, you know, we see that in, we see that embodied in, in Satan and Genesis yeah. 3. Right? We see that embodied in the wickedness of the earth in Genesis 6 and following. Uh, we see that in some of the other monstrous figures or characters or things that come about in the scriptures, whether they are human or Sometimes, sometimes uh, depicted in some sort of animal form, right? The the great Leviathan that comes up uh, several yeah. places in Scripture. Um, you know, it, it's this force of this this sea dragon or sea serpent or large monster. Uh, you know that is that is set against and opposed uh, to Yahweh and His Word, right? It comes up in Job and then in the Psalms and in Isaiah, and it's yeah, it's this it's this serpent. Like, but the, the whole point of it is that it depicts or embodies. Everything that is evil, uh, and set in, set against and opposed uh, to God's uh, to God's word, to his to his work, to his ways, to his reign, um, to his coming Messiah and Christ too. And you know, so in the New Testament, this this monstrousness uh, kind of continues, both again embodied sometimes in man, um, in his sinfulness, but then also in you know, in different ways. Uh, well, you know, Jesus himself wrestles with the uh, with the devil in the, in the wilderness. Right, is tempted. Right. Um, right. A very, a very monstrous kind of. Uh, you know, it's a monster story, right? But but the good news is that unlike you know Israel and countless people before Christ, right, what does Jesus do with monsters? Well, he he overcomes them. Right. Um, Reminds me of the, this great quote from G.K. Chesterton about, uh, you know, fairy tales tell us uh, not only that dragons exist, but that they can be slain or defeated. Right? Amen. Um, yeah, I've always loved right. that quote because it reminds us, yes, there are monstrous things, again, real, imagined, human, and in the scriptures, right? We also have to include the, the supernatural there, too. Um, mm. uh, and yet these, right, these these powers and principalities and spiritual forces um all rest under the feet defeated by Christ, right? Vanquished, and uh, and overcome by by Him, uh, by by our victor, right? By our by our our in captain of sense, our salvation. Then, in one sense, Scripture is uh, is the original horror story, right? It's the original monster. Yeah, out I think you can story. And, sure, yeah, I, I think you can you can definitely see how that plays it out, self out in 
lots of different genres where, you know, there, there's this idea of horror or fear or scary, you know, whatever it is that captivates our our emotions in that way. And, and the scripture is sort shows what's behind all of that, right? I mean, what's what's behind all the all all the all murder and disease and plots of evil? Well, it's right, it's sin, death, the devil, um, sort of the the three-headed monster of of a fallen world, right? right? And yet Christ has come to right to crush that serpent underfoot. I love that scene in um oh, it's in the the newer Passion of the Christ movie, right? That Mel Gibson did right in the right. opening bit, right? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And it's all like this quiet music and you know, the little crickets chirping and things and it's dark. And then all of a sudden you see this snake slithering, right? Uh, and then Jesus just squishes it, stomps it underfoot. <laughs> I, when I saw that in the movie theater, people jumped. Like the, there was no other really scary part of the movie other than this, the, the, the horrors of crucifixion itself that were depicted. Um, but that part was, I thought that was really, that was a great, that was a great creative license um, depicting yeah. Jesus' defeat of of the monster himself, of Satan, right? And, and you know, Revelation does this language um, and uses this language too of the monster, of the beast, um, whether it's Rome, whether it's Babylon, whether it's all the forces that are set against Christ and his church and his people, right? His saints, his holy ones, um, they, they take on this beast-like, monstrous-like form, right? Um, of course, with us being kind of mankind, being the greatest monster, uh, monster of all, but, uh, you know, Jesus does one better, right? He, <laughs> he, uh, he takes on our humanity and you know, sort of destroys the monster from the inside, right? He lets death swallow him up. Um, and, and how many, you know, how many cool fairy stories or other sci-fi stories have you seen where, you know, some hero goes down into the bit of, uh, into the pit of a, of a worm or a dragon or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, and not, this doesn't, I don't think, spoil too many things, but in one of the recent Mandalorian episodes, right? He does this, right? He does it. He goes into the this big cave uh, serpent thing, right? And uh, this big space dragon slug. And he destroys it from the inside. Right? That's a picture of what Christ is doing on a grand cosmic sale, uh, scale in real life um, by destroying death from the inside, by uh, defeating defeating the monsters for us, by becoming right uh, becoming sin and death on the cross it's a, it's a beautiful thing so quite a yeah quite a, that's, quite a new yeah thing absolutely to we're going the imagination right there already the, the that's, okay. that's over. a good spot to go yeah and um i just got to tell the listener if you're listening to this i hope you are understanding that scripture the christian worldview understanding who christ is hearing the gospel is not only going to uh, feed your your uh, you know the comfort that you're looking for give you peace it's also going to help you watch the Mandalorian. Uh, you are gonna, <laughs> you're going to be able to appreciate this is the stories. Way. This is the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it, there is some, I, I say that in jest, but there's some, some seriousness to that, right? I mean, when you understand mm -hmm. the one true story, it informs all others and it makes yep. them richer. All right, my friend, thank you for your time today. We'll see you next week. Glad to. Sounds good. All right. God's blessings. And we will be right back. Don't go away for segment three coming up in just a minute. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church.
And just like that, we're at the end of another hour of cross defense. It has been great hanging out with you guys for the last 40 minutes or so. We got about 20 to go. We're in our last segment. We have equipped the mind. We have excited the imagination. And now we are on to comforting the soul. I was uh, asked a question this last week. A, A listener reached out to me and wanted to know what I would tell someone about suffering. The question was really about uh, why do good people suffer? And, and there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about when it comes to that kind of a question. There's what does it mean to be a good person? There's civil righteousness. There's uh, you know our works and how we are not good people. By nature, we are all sinners. We are all evil, wicked. Our works are nothing but rags, rags, uh, if you really want to think about it. So there's that, all that to deal with, but also this idea of, of just suffering. And the, that was really what was behind the question. And I want to kind of get in this with you. It just so happened that as this question came to me, I was uh, doing a little research for something else for another project. And I was back into a great book. I don't know if you have read this yet. If you haven't, you're missing out. But uh, Brian Wolfmiller's A Martyr's Faith in a Faithless World, a great book. And I was re- reviewing it for another project. And uh, it just it hit at the right moment when one of you listeners reached out to me and wanted to know about suffering. And and so, you know, I'm not going to share what I shared with the person privately, uh, but I am going to go into a detail of the conversation, one specific avenue of it, and that is suffering. Suffering that we endure. You know, Wolf Miller does a great job. Pastor Wolf Miller does a wonderful job in this book of talking about what suffering is. And I recently preached a sermon at my church. I had the opportunity to preach and talked about suffering, how we rejoice in our suffering. When you suffer, when you're going through hardships and hard times, turmoil, what's your disposition? Now, honest question, how do you handle, how do you respond, how do you react to the difficulties, the burdens that come your way? Scripture tells us we are to rejoice in our suffering because when we do that, when we are experiencing suffering, I should say, we are sharing in the cross of Christ. There's so many different passages we could go to. Scripture is clear. Jesus teaches that to follow him is to die. The one who would seek to find his life, to save his life, he will lose it by trying to preserve and trying to avoid suffering. He will lose it. But the one who loses his life who follows Christ, who takes up his cross daily and follows the Lord, that one, that person will find it and, and find life eternal without end, true life, the way it was meant to be from the beginning. Uh, let's go into this idea, though, of what is happening when you're suffering, just so people can understand that you know, when, when you're going through hard times, there's... There's a couple different ways you could look at it. And and St. Peter gives us a really good way of understanding suffering. And Wolf Miller writing, St. Saint Brian <laughs> writing, gives us a way of understanding this as well. So I'm just going to read from this book for a second, and then we'll talk some more about it. We know that the devil uses suffering to try to destroy our faith, Wolf Miller says. Peter tells us God's purpose in suffering is not to destroy us, but that God's purpose is to test the genuineness of our faith. Wolf Miller continues. Peter uses the picture of a metal refinery, and he points us to Malachi 3, verses 2 
and 3, which read, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Like a refiner. The Lord refines his silver, his precious metal. Wolf Miller continues, gold and silver are not entirely pure. Other metals are always mixed in. 24 karat gold is almost 100% gold. 12 karat gold is 50% gold and 50% other metals. Sterling silver jewelry is often stamped with 925 on it because it is 92.5% silver. Fine silver is 99.9% silver. To purify these metals, you apply heat. When the metal is liquefied, the dross floats to the top. If the metal is pure, you see it when it's hot enough. There is no dross. Peter says that our suffering is the fire that heats up our faith. If there is dross, that is disingenuousness, hypocrisy, and things like this, it is exposed. It floats to the surface. And in suffering, the Lord takes these things away. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Proverbs 17, 3. Proverbs 17, 3. Suffering, fire, heat. You ever heard that phrase, right? The, the, you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Things are getting hot, getting uncomfortable. You want to get away from the stove, away from the oven, away from the thing that's making you uncomfortable. What is God using that heat for, that fire? He's using it to purify you, dear Christian. He's using it to make that dross, that hypocrisy, the, the, the disingenuousness, the guile within you to float to the top so it can be removed so that you can be pure silver, pure gold. It's purifying you. Now, I often like to talk about when I'm teaching on this with my previous congregations and as I was speaking to the listener who reached out this past week, I like to talk about how the devil tempts us, but our Lord tests us. Lead us not into temptation. The, the Lord does not tempt you. And here's the difference, really, to kind of boil it down. Temptation, temptation destroys. The goal of the devil is to tempt you into sin, to, to destroy you. And your old Adam loves this. Your old Adam wants to succumb to temptation, to live in the darkness, to sin, to be the old Adam. But the new man, the new man is tested. The new man wants to resist temptation, wants to do what is right, wants to be sanctified, wants to live in his justification, wants to be Christ's man. So temptation, it tears you down. It destroys you. The devil is a destroyer, the destroyer. God is the creator. The devil can't create. He can't create a single thing. All the devil can do is lie. That's why he's the father of lies. He can't even create sentences. He can't create words. He can't create a single thing. All he can do is manipulate that which is already made. 
God is the creator. He speaks things into being. He creates from nothing. He brings to life. He's the one who builds up. The devil tears down. Think of it this way. Explosions can do two things. They can be used for two different purposes, I should say. If someone puts a bomb in a building and blows it up, normally that's a bad thing. It's destroying the building. It's bringing it down. But if someone puts that bomb in the building on purpose to raise the building, to to purposely bring down a, a broken down old building, you wouldn't call that bad. Same device, same ultimate result as you see it from the outside, but there's for two different things happening for two different purposes, right? One is, is destroying that building just for the sake of destroying it. The other one is removing the decay, removing that which is not safe, removing the broken, the decrepit, so that something better can be built in that spot. Something can be erected that is good and strong and will survive, well, in the case of the reference, forever. You're the building, my friends. The devil wants to tempt you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to blow you up and annihilate you to where there is nothing left of you. But the Lord, if you are enduring hardship and suffering, from his hand it is a test, a fiery trial. He is removing the bad, the decrepit, the broken, the sinful, so that something strong and firm, immortal, imperishable, can be built upon that foundation. It is generally regarded as a bad thing to be cut by a knife. If someone was to cut you, you wouldn't like it. And yet you go to the doctor, you have surgery, and what does the doctor do? He intentionally cuts you open. Same tool, a blade. Same immediate result, the ripping open of your flesh. Injury, wound. And yet, two completely different outcomes. Get knifed in the alley, cut for no good reason. It's, it's painful. It hurts. There's no good that comes out of it. It's just, it's just agony. It's just destruction. But get knifed by your surgeon, and you'll be on the mend. You'll be doing well, getting better. It's for a purpose. Suffering. When suffering comes to us, when suffering comes to you, dear listener, as a Christian, that suffering is caused to rejoice. The fiery trial is upon you. The cross that the Lord told you is yours to bear, to follow after him. It is a sharing of his cross. Now, you're not going to be hung on a cross, I don't imagine. Maybe you are somewhere if you're listening in some part of the world where they're, they're doing extreme persecutions and, and their martyrdom is still a, very much a reality. Perhaps you will die like the Lord did, literally bearing your cross. Perhaps your suffering is milder in that regard, some, some different form of pain. And, and here's another part of the conversation I had, and this is a little off topic, but it's kind of all in the same realm. Suffering is suffering, okay? There, there's a very 
big temptation, again, temptation from the devil, to see one's suffering as greater or lesser than someone else's suffering. This is false. This is not a good practice. This is what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to start ranking and organizing pain and suffering so that you see yourself as the one who's suffering the worst. When my son was diagnosed with cancer, a brother pastor reached out to me, and it was all well intended. And we were talking about what was going on, and he was there for me trying to let me, you know, let me know he was in my corner and all that kind of stuff. And he mentioned, you know, something about his own family and, and what one of his kids was going through. But then he, he paused and he backpedaled and he said, oh, but that's nothing compared to what your son's going through, what your family's going through. And I then stopped him. And I said, no, my friend, I appreciate what you're doing, but let's not go down that road. Because the hurt that your child's going through for you right now in your family is just as severe as the hurt my child's going through with my family. Hurt is hurt. Sure, certain, certain types of suffering are, are grander from our, our human perspective. Maybe they're sexier. They're, they get more attention. There's, there's campaigns. There's kids against cancer and there's ribbons and things like that that all go. Maybe there's some of that for some issue that someone's going through and not for another. So, you know, we're tempted to rate these things, but pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. And for the person going through it at that moment, it's, it's extremely painful. It's hard. We don't need to rate our suffering. Everyone in this world is hurting because we live in a sinful world. We live in a broken world. Your pain is just as painful no matter what it is, is just as painful to you as my pain is to me. The devil wants us to see that maybe my pain is, is greater than your pain. I want you to know that I'm, I'm going through a lot more than you are, and I'm going to quantify it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delineate it for you, maybe even psychologically or subconsciously, not even realizing it. I'm going to make sure you know that my given situation is worse than, than yours to validate what I'm going through and the hurt I'm going through. It almost becomes like a trophy. It almost becomes like a prize to be the one who's going through the most pain. And this is a, a real issue for a lot of people. We get in these routines where we think we have to, to maximize, magnify the pain we're going through for other people so they know just what we're experiencing. We're almost fishing for sympathy. Let's just avoid it. Let's avoid it by realizing that everyone's suffering. It's not to minimize, minimize it at all. That's not what I'm saying. We're not, I'm not trying to dismiss suffering. Actually, what I'm doing is opening up the gate to, to let in it all, let all the suffering in, to, to recognize, to confirm that, yes, we're all hurting. Yes, we're all suffering. And that is why we need Christ. That is why we need the one who uses the knife as a scalpel. That is why we need the one who uses the explosive device not to destroy the building for no good reason, but to bring down the old sinful Adam so that the new man can stand in his place in the foundation where he is, built upon the cross, so that that structure can be erected and stand strong. This is why we need Christ, because we're all suffering. We need Christ because we're all suffering because we're all bad people. No one's good. Not on his own. 
not apart from the Lord. No one, not a single person is good. We are all wretched. Our works are all as filthy rags apart from the cross, apart from Christ. The refiner's fire. When you are going through suffering, dear Christian, understand that suffering to be the refiner's fire. That testing is building you up, strengthening you, making you pure, pure treasure, pure gold. It is not meant to tear you down. It is not meant to destroy you. That is not what the Lord does. That's what Satan does. He's the destroyer. God is the creator. He builds you up. Christ has won. The cross stands fixed. The foundation has been laid. And the building, the church, the temple, made up of living stones of you and me, it is being erected. Those stones are solid and formed strong because Christ, your Lord, is forming you. Amen. All right, guys, thank you so much for this last hour. The first episode of Cross Defense 2021 is in the bag. I really appreciate all your time. I really appreciate that you listen and that you engage and that you trust me enough to reach out and ask these kind of questions. So thank you very much for that. It is an honor and a privilege, and I hope one that I will continue to earn from you. If you want to reach out to me, you don't know how to, my website is the easiest way to do it by email. Just go to tyrellbramwell.com, flip to the bottom of the page, and you'll see a contact button there. Go ahead and click that. You can send me an email that way, or you can DM me on Instagram or Facebook. God's blessings to you. Christ be with you, and I will talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.